Good morning. If, uh, if you'd like to get ready, we're going to be in Luke and John. Uh, this is our third week going through the Stations of the Cross. And it seems fairly appropriate since a lot of the sharing times where I've had a hard week. And that is sort of the story of the Stations of the Cross. Jesus was having a really hard week. And so I hope that, that this can help. I'm actually going to share something really quick before we go into that. Uh, Luke 23 is where we're going to begin, but I'm going to read you a portion of Scripture in 1 Corinthians In 1 Corinthians, they were going through a time where, where the church was exploding and they had all these really charismatic preachers. And whenever you have charismatic preachers, people will you know, choose which one's their favorite. And that's sort of what was happening in the early church. They had Apollos, they had Paul, they had Peter. They had all these guys that were really gifted. And, and so people chose sides. And so Paul wrote to the Corinthian church because some of them said, well, I really like you, Paul. And Paul was like, well, no thanks. That's not the way that it works in the church. And in response, he said, you know, who can say I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of so-and-so. And and this is what he ends up saying. He says... if, oh, if you want to be there, 1 Corinthians 1.17. Sometimes, sometimes I don't give you the reference because I think it's better to listen. Oftentimes we get distracted when we're trying to do our own thing too. So um, 1 Corinthians 1.17, if you'd like to be there. You can close your eyes too if you'd like. It helps me sometimes when I'm listening to Reader's Theater or something like that. It says, For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach, because and the, the issue there was some people were going, oh, I was baptized by Paul, I'm special. And he goes, well, uh, God didn't just send me to baptize, but to preach, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God stronger than human strength. So, so as we, we've spent the last two weeks, this week and then the next week, talking about the cross, and then and the next week will be the resurrection, I just pray that, that the power of God will, will really be made 
evident to us. We'll see it. We'll experience it in this time because, because if it's fancy words that we're looking for, if it's fun music or whatever we, we, we might look for or appreciate and might cause us to say, oh, I like this person, that person, this. what we're looking for is power. Um, a power that, that oftentimes, if we're just looking for the worldly view of power, is going to look foolish. And so I'm just going to pray for us that as we go, my, my prayer is always, God, open wide my eyes, because oftentimes we live with closed eyes, not seeing really what he has, because we're so busy trying to see what we want to see. So pray with me, and then we'll, we'll jump into Luke 23. Oh God, I pray that, that once again, God will see the beauty of the cross, or maybe for the first time. In Galatians, Paul wrote, he says, Oh, you foolish Galatians, wasn't Christ portrayed as crucified for you? Didn't you see it? <laughs> but God, I, I fear that sometimes in our stubbornness we're looking for something else. And so God, by your spirit, I pray to have mercy on us to just enjoy what you've done, something that we couldn't do, but something that we can participate in, something that you just give to us that's so costly and so rich. Oh God, to see again that it is, it is through Jesus' death on the cross that we can be made alive, truly. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Luke 23, starting in verse 32. We're going to take this from Luke and John and then look through five stations of the cross. We're going to see Jesus all the way from, from when he was crucified to when he was buried today, or laid in the tomb. In Luke 23, starting in verse 32, this is how it reads. It says, Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself. But the other criminals rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. 
When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and actions. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, placed it in a tomb, cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was a preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. It's just a good story. Okay. John 18.23. And, and the real... Um, distinction between the two that we're looking at in this one is Jesus' care for his mother that you see in this one. In, in John 18, starting in verse 23, we're going to go to verse 30. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them in four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarments remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another, then deciding by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said they divided his clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. Uh, his, sorry, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to his disciples, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Now later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, but the, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, he said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What do we see when we see this? The first thing we see is is Jesus being nailed to a tree, nailed to this, this rough cross. And why this way? Oftentimes when we come to the story of Jesus, I mean, even reading through this again, there's so much I'm not going to touch on, the, the hyssop, the, you know, all, these, all this imagery you get, all these, this symbolism from the Old Testament. But a few things we see when we just look over it, why here? Why this tree? It's this strange approach we have when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ and we realize that the Son of God himself looked at the cross and said, this is the place of my death. Right? It's a strange thing when we enter the dialogue saying, God himself decided upon this moment to die. And this was his chosen place of death. And what does that mean? What does that mean for us that God chose the cross as his form of dying? It's a very public death. 
It's a political death. It's not a religious death. It's a political death. And, and so why the cross? Two things, I think, really stick out. Um, just as far as, as why this form, not just death itself, but why this form. And the first thing is this, that it had this, this tremendous humiliation to it. A humiliation that on every level is about the worst form of humiliation you can imagine possible. One of those forms of humiliation is simply because you're, you're just vulnerable, right? It said they took off his garment and all he had was his undergarments. And he's just hanging in the air, right? This is incredible, this incredible vulnerable spot. And in Philippians it says, in being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross, right? So it's this additional, additional humiliation that's added in the cross being his choice. Even more than that, in Galatians, it reminds us of Deuteronomy, where it just says, cursed is the person who is hung on a tree, right? And as, as they lift up in, in that exodus, a serpent, where people would look to that, this, this cursed serpent, right? They'd look to it and see that maybe their healing would come from that, right? And so, and all that imagery saying, cursed is the one who hangs on a stick, right? And now you see Jesus hanging on the tree. And so not only is it this, this humbled himself to death, even death on a cross, but then you have, and cursed is the man who hangs there, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, so what would they see when they saw this? When they saw the chosen place of God to die, well, they would see, they would see one who is absolutely vulnerable, and they would see one who's absolutely cursed. Absolutely vulnerable and absolutely cursed. And we talk about, and you know, Paul shared earlier, we talked about the pain from a believer, right? And, and adding to that humiliation, the vulnerability, is people saying this to him. So, you're going to destroy the temple and raise it in three days. Save yourself. Right? This, this mockery added to the vulnerability, added to the curse. Right? So this is inc it's inc unbelievable. Look at what is going on. It's, this is the chosen place of Jesus to die. The second is helplessness, and, and it's read into everything we just looked at. But this helplessness is one that presumably someone would say, if you are God, and you want us to believe in you, show us your power. And that's exactly what they say. If you read in Luke, this is what it says. It says, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's, he's the king of Israel. It says, let him come down from the cross, and then we will believe in him. Right? Listen to that temptation, right? This is so similar when Satan took Jesus up on the, on the, the spire of the, of the temple, and he said, he said, I'll tell you what, I know why you're here, Jesus. You're here so people will worship you, and they'll believe in you, and they'll love you. He's like, tell you what, I'll surrender right now if you just worship me. Right? You can have everyone believe. That's, I'm fine with that. If, you, if, they if they believe you but worship me, I'm cool with that. <laughs> and it's the same temptation here that, that they're saying, added to the humiliation, added to the vulnerability, added to his exposure. And they're saying to him, Jesus, if you want us to believe in you, just show us a miracle now. 
Show us a miracle. Right? And this is the station of the cross we get to look at first. Being nailed to the cross, the chosen place of death. What is that when we pause and look at that? It's, it's something that, that we will only understand if we begin, begin allowing God to sort of have explained to us why he's doing this crazy thing. Because for us, who see power in every other way than vulnerability, than exposure, than humiliation, that is the antithesis of power for us. That's the like, antithesis of what we want to believe in. Right? <laughs> and here we have him going, this is your God. Adding to that, moving to the second station of the cross, is the criminals. And in, in Luke, it says that, or sorry, in Matthew, it says, it says the same robbers who were crucified with him heaped insults on him. Which if you remember in, in Luke, it's this very different portrayal, which is, and what's beautiful about this is so as they're crucified next to him and they're hearing everyone heap insults on him, this is their last game, right? What else do they have to do to pass their time while they're trying to raise themselves to get breath in their lungs? Well, their last game can be to mock the gather with, right? And that's, that's probably exactly what they were doing. But then this change of heart happens in one of them. And as he is heaping insults on him, he realizes that <laughs> it's not that fun. This guy who he's insulting is not, is not responding with anger. But his words are coming back with, Father, forgive them. They don't, they don't know what they're doing. Father, these guys are, are just spitefully yelling at me. Forgive them. They don't, they don't know. And, when, and when the criminal hears that, he thinks, forgiveness. If he could forgive these guys who are taunting him mercilessly, maybe he'll forgive me. Maybe he'll forgive me. And so he looks at the other criminal and he says to him, he says, we, we deserve this. But this, this man has done nothing wrong. And then he looks at him and he says, he says, remember me. Just please remember me when you enter your kingdom. And the, this, the most beautiful thing happens and Jesus looks to me and says, truly today you'll be with me in paradise. And if there's potential in that thief on the cross coming to a relationship with Jesus where Jesus is like, I'm going home and I'm just getting ready for, I'm just getting it ready for you, right? If there's potential in that, that speaks endless potential for us. And, and I'm going to share you, with you something later about a seed and, and things like that, but, but hold this thought with you that even at this last moment, 
in this thief's last breaths, as he, maybe merely minutes ago, was insulting this one who could save him, and then has a change of heart, and that man still saves him, that gives so much hope for us. And that's, that's incredible. So the thief, though, he was not the only one looking at Jesus. And, and there were these people collected around the cross. And, you, and as you see them, you, you, kind of, you kind of hold on to their story, right? As you have even ones that weren't present. You have the disciples. Where are the disciples? Well, they, they were scared. They weren't there. You have Mary, Jesus' mother. You have Mary Magdalene. Later, you have a centurion who's noticed. Um, but you have these people gather, and, and we kind of see it from these different angles. And what was going on? What was being experienced? What did the cross mean for them? And what does the cross mean for us? For Jesus' mother, which is the third station we're going to look at, it was this, for her, this, this culmination that, if, that seemed like, like maybe... I mean, who knows? She's portrayed in so many lights that, that maybe she, she really had, as it said in, in the early, early Gospels, that she'd held those things in her heart that the, the Magi had said to her and that the angel had said to her and the shepherds had said to her. And maybe she had held these things in her heart. And so when she saw Jesus on the cross, maybe she wasn't scared like the disciples were and ran away because, because she remembered those things. Jesus' relation with, with her, relationship with her is still one of tenderness and care, which is beautiful as he says, woman, here's your son, making sure she's cared for still. But I want to I draw this really interesting comparison that we have between what could appear as being her forsaken to actually her greatest needs being fulfilled. And looking at this in, in juxtaposition or, or alongside this view of Jesus's, the appearance of Jesus' forsakenment by the Father. So what it looks like is, is it looks like Jesus is forsaking his mother. He's, he's there as a criminal being killed. And what that means for his family is to be ostracized in the world's eyes, right? She's the mother of a criminal. A mother of a criminal that was cursed and humiliated and hung on a tree. And how, how does that forsakenness actually fulfillment? We looked, um, we looked earlier at... Uh, this year, well, last year, uh, at, at this, the word Simeon gave to Mary. If you remember when they came to the temple. And, and when they were, they were coming to the temple to, to have Jesus um, be, be blessed right after he was born, a man came up to them and he said this to her. Simeon, he says, This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken of against 
so that the thought of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. That's a lot for a little girl to handle. <laughs> right? right? This, this little girl, if we, we, we track from when she gave birth to Jesus and the angel came to her and he says, he says you are blessed by God. And this is, this is amazing. Honestly, the Catholics get this way more right than we do, is that Mary was a special girl. Special in such a way that, that she had won favor, it says, in the eyes of God. Oftentimes we're like, yeah, Mary gave birth to Jesus, and then it's cool. But, but it's special in the way that, that God literally had, did not like, run a lotto of all the girls on the planet. But he saw Mary, who won favor with God, right? This girl of incredible faith. A girl of incredible faith who would go through just as much or more than any mother would ever have to go through with a child. And right off from the birth, she would know that her heart would be pierced by this. Your heart will be, he will cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and you're not going to be unscathed, right? You're going to come out of this hurting, <laughs> right? So how can that forsakenment turn into fulfillment? Because the one who hung there on the cross was the fulfillment of what Israel had been looking forward to, right? That by his wounds they would be healed, but she would be wounded too. And we see the forsakenness turned into fulfillment in the same way that we see in Jesus, where Jesus himself on the cross cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and what this literally is, when Jesus is saying this, is not, is not this verbal, God, where are you? But it's a, a verbal fulfillment of the of the prophecy of Psalm 22 where David, the psalmist, cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so, and so David's crying out the cry of humanity saying, God, we're, we're lonely and we're hurting. And so when, when Jesus responds in that way, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then moments later says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Right? How do you hold these two things together? You've, why have you forsaken me? And into your hands I'm committing my spirit. Is because the first one wasn't this cry of Jesus going, God, you're nowhere to be found, because he was God himself. But he's saying, this cry that humanity cries of, my God, where are you? Jesus was saying, here I am. Here I am, right? As the, as the people forsook him, and he's saying, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the response Jesus is giving. I am God, and I'm not forsaking you. Right? Because his relationship with the Father here is not, is not one of misunderstanding like we oftentimes read into that cry that Jesus has. Because Jesus moments later is going, Father, receive my spirit. So, 
how is it that Mary is not being forsaken but fulfilled? It's the same way that it was Jesus says, my God, why have you forsaken me? And responds to that feeling, that longing in us of, God, this world is one of darkness oftentimes. And then when he said, it is finished, and the curtain tore, it's this beautiful fulfillment of, of God saying, I'm unleashing my spirit upon the peoples. So Mary, I, I want you just to pause there and just think of Mary, maybe later today. Is it like, what, what is so special about Mary that oftentimes we Protestants forget? <laughs> right? What's so special about Mary is she was given such a special task. Right? I mean, if you think about this in worldly terms, so the angel comes to her and says, so you're going to be the mom, I'm going to be the dad. <laughs> and... And she's like, so do you get him on the weekends? Or, you know, like, how do you figure all that out? Right? This this complexity and confusion that could be there. God's saying, Mary, this is a huge thing I'm giving you. But I know you're a woman of faith, right? And as she carries that faith all the way to the very end, and and the sword pierces her own heart, I want you guys just to to pause and reflect on Mary and just, just see how... God is welcoming her in a very special way to participate in, in, in her seeing that, that God is responding, this, responding to the, the first, the, the, what we see as the forsakenness of the world. Right? And Mary just gets to participate in the fulfillment of that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you've prayed that prayer... Jesus is the response on the cross. Right? And, and Mary gets this wonderful humanity through Mary, gets this amazing participation in it. Um, the next thing we see is, is Jesus' actual death on the cross. How do we make sense of, of God dying? And as I was thinking through this, I thought oftentimes we, just, we don't necessarily immediately get the way things work, both growing up and maybe now. If, when, when I go visit my nephews, and if it's before work, and we play and we have a good time, and then I say to them, Titus and August, I need to go to work. They're like, why do you have to go to work? Right, just play all day. That's what we do. <laughs> why do you have to go to work? Right, that's oftentimes why we'll... I think there's this amazing parallel. Maybe you don't get it immediately. This amazing parallel you get with why did, you, why did God have to die? Right? I think it's that we bring the same naivety to it as Titus and August bring to me when they're like, we're fed, we're clothed, and we play. You know, we're, we're good. <laughs> why, why did God have to die? Well, there's, there's so much that God has given us to see this other than just Jesus. He, really, he's filled the world with so many good examples. And the first one, he literally, this week, I think it was because I was really busy and he wanted to give me a jump start on my sermon. He, he kind of kept me awake thinking about 
the way a seed becomes a plant or a tree. And I'm sure this is something you guys stay up thinking about often. So I'll just breeze over this. The seed will not, cannot grow on its own. A seed is just life that is lifeless in a husk. The seed is essentially lifeless potential for life. It is seemingly constantly in the process of death until it's resurrected. It waits, it cannot move itself, and it is wholly reliant. It has this tough exterior that's called a seed coat that provides protection from parasites, injuries to itself, and temperatures. And this is oftentimes, I, I think this is, this is what, what life is like. This is what our lives are like. We have this exterior that we, have, we hold ourselves within, <laughs> waiting to become alive. Inside that seed coat is an embryo, which is an, an immature plant. If you actually look inside a, a seed, they say, well, depending on what seed you look at, I guess, but there's, oftentimes it will be inside the seed coat, um, the actual beginnings of, of the plant itself. But they're completely lifeless. Um, and, and as in John 12, you know, Jesus says, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And that's, seeds are in this process of dying, and they have to be, or, or there won't be life. And that, that process of death is called dormancy. And so it just stays in that spot until something comes and makes it alive. And when that comes, it's called germination. And get this, this is from a scholarly journal written at WSU. <clears throat> germination is a fascinating process. It says, seeing a tiny seedling emerge from a dry, wrinkled seed and watching its growth and transformation is observing the mystery of life unfolding. The first sign of germination is the absorption of water, lots of water. It says this activates the enzymes, respiration increases, and the plant cells begin to duplicate. Soon the embryo becomes large and the seed coat bursts open and the growing plant emerges. It says the tip of the root is the first to emerge and for good reason. It will anchor the seed in its place and allow the embryo to absorb water and nutrients from the soil. So why am I sharing this? Why is this so fascinating? It's because is because literally, I, I, <laughs> I think Jesus in, in John 12 was saying, look at this, and maybe you'll get why I go to work, right? You'll get why I die, right? It's because, because the world waiting for Jesus to come, right? In the song of the Holy Night where it says, long lay the world in sin and error, pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. That the world is waiting, was waiting to become alive, like, like that seed is waiting for the water, lots of water to come, and make those enzymes actually start working, right? And then life will come from that, right? That, that unless you get this, you don't get anything else in the Christian message. Unless you get this, you get nothing else. That we are lifeless until the Son of God comes and activates our spirit so we can become alive. 
right? Like that seed, we are waiting. We are waiting, waiting, waiting until we are brought alive. Right? And we miss this all the time. We miss this in nature. We think trees just grow, right? We think, like Titus and August, just think they're clothed. And they just think they're fed, right? It doesn't just work like that. Right? And in the same way, God, God has made these things so we can see and go, oh, I need that. There's these miracles going on around us to awaken us to the reality that we are holy, needy people, needing Jesus to make our spirits alive. How many of us live with allowing our spirits to remain dead? Right? Not realizing we need life. We need that so badly. And so when we see Jesus dying here, we go, why? Because he's, just, he's showing us something that we will not get unless he does that. And that's, that's why I wish we just could preach death and then resurrection immediately. Next week, my dad gets to preach that. But listen to this. There's, this. there's this lady named Lilius Trotter. She was a missionary. And she wrote these amazing poems and, and works. And a lot of it is just observing nature and seeing, seeing what God's telling us. And, and she writes that she says, The death of the cross, when death triumphs, that was the point where God's gate opened, and that gate, and to that gate we come again and again as our lives unfold, and through it we pass, even on earth, to our joyful resurrection, to a life each time more abundant. For each time the dying is deeper. The Christian life is the process of deliverance out of one world into another, and death, has been tr- as it has truly been said, is the only way out of this world we are in. Not only in physical terms, but in spiritual terms right now, unless we realize that our spirits themselves are dead, will we not realize and appreciate the life that he brings to us. Unless we real- and that's why oftentimes when we preach the message of sin, we're like, that, that's so condemning. But, but there's this glory in it because, because it's, God is literally saying, I've given you a spirit. There's so much potential there. Don't you just see that you need, you need me to breathe life into it again? It says, be it as it is in nature, at any rate in the world of grace, that each soul that would enter into real life must bear at the outset this crimson seal, the blood of Jesus. There must be the individual sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. It must go out through the gate of Christ. It's the only way to that life. Death is the only way out of this world of condemnation wherein we live. Shut into the world, it is vain to try by any self-effort to battle out. Nothing can revoke the decree. The soul that sinneth shall die. This is amazing. And And I hope that you guys see and just enjoy this. Go be gardeners and enjoy this. Right? That... That God is, God is wishing us to see that, that through death, beautiful life can be won. But this week, we, we get this to just strangely contemplate the, this burial, death and burial process of Jesus, right? As he, as he dies and then is laid in the tomb. And this, just as death 
for us strikes us as strange, this should and must strike us as strange that Jesus could die and be buried in the tomb. And in some ways is not easy or helpful for the way we would like to come to faith. Right? 1 Corinthians 1, as we just read earlier, it says it's foolishness. Right? If you're, if you're trying to come at it from this way of like, well, I'm, well, God, I, that was a plan I would have recommended. Right? That when we see Jesus being buried... What, is that, what, is, what would that do? Well, to the disciples who were kind of front row seats to the action, that was not encouraging to their faith, right? They scattered. How, how could life, how could anything good come from this? So much so the fact that when Jesus suggested it, if you remember in Mark 8, remember? It said, Jesus in plain words said to them, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be betrayed, and I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be buried, but don't worry, I'm going to rise again. And Peter takes him aside, he's like, bad plan. And, and Jesus turns around and says, and he says, he rebukes him, get behind me, Satan. Peter, you don't have good ideas. He, and so, and, and if we're going to take this seriously, we have to go, the tomb is a rough one for us, that, that here's this one who promised so much, being laid to final rest. And in the same way as, in, if you are familiar with the book of Ezekiel in the Bible, and God takes Ezekiel to this, this valley of bones. There's not even, there's no carnage even, there's just dry bones, right? And he says, can these bones live? And Ezekiel, being a lot smarter than me, could have been like, <laughs> Ezekiel said, oh God, only you know. Right, that's a good default. <laughs> if he asks you a question, <laughs> like, you know this one. Right, uh, um, can these bones live? And, and Ezekiel says, only you know. And God says, yes, they can. Right, and that's what we see. Can these bones live? Can Jesus live again? Can this seed in the ground, which is dead, right? It's in this weird package sent by, you know, who knows what seed company, right? Can this seed that's been packaged for so long, if I, I don't know if you guys, I was homeschooled, I don't know if they did this in school. You know, you have your mason jar and you wrap it with paper towel and you put your pinto bean in it and you keep it watered and then the pinto bean grows. Okay, right, so... So with that, can, can that pinto bean sprout? <laughs> oh, teacher, only you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> How is this possible? <laughs> right? And as we, we see Jesus being put in the tomb, can this, can this God save the world? Right? The story is fantastic. It's one that that unless you begin really reading and understanding and believing, say, oh God, only you know, because this plan is way too radical for me, <laughs> right? Like when I'm reading the Old Testament, I'm getting nervous. I start sweating and I, you know, I, <laughs> is this going to work out? You know, I mean, Israel, they were kind of strong for a while, but they're not anymore. They're in Babylon. Is this going to work out, you know? <laughs> 
And as we see the story unfold, we keep saying, God, only you know. God, you're saying things that sound way too fantastic. Are you still going to redeem the world? Oh God, you're on the cross and you saved others, but can you save yourself? Oh God, you died and now you're in the tomb. What's going to happen? Right? And we still go through these points of conflict and doubt in our own lives as we're going, Oh God, I know that you saved me and that was really great, but I'm in a real hitch right now. Right? So it's good as we walk these stations of the cross and look and, and watch as, as this happens and we see him going from, from being betrayed by one of his best friends, right? As we see him lonely and pleading, sweating drops of blood because he's in agony over the pain he's going to have to experience, right? To bear the sin of the world as we see him carrying a cross. All these stations as we watch them and we go, can you do this? And then he's buried in the tomb, right? What's going to happen next? Because he's dead, dead. In the words of Princess Bride, he is not just almost dead, he's fully dead. <laughs> and what, what is going to happen? End of story. No, so, so you're going to get more next week. Right, but what does this death mean? This death has been one that's promised. I mean, that first week we read Isaiah 53, and, and over and over again, it was like, I just love that. It says that the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. If these promises are true, if it's not forsakenment, but it's fulfillment, and in his cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was answering our cry, Right? If this is what's happening, take heart, right? because he has overcome the world, that in these things, he is plotting great victory for ourselves. That seed, which seems impossible that it could become the mighty oak tree, will actually bear fruit, right? come to life. That this, this strange, mysterious hope is true. Right, the story is true. We live in a truly marvelous world, and you know that. I mean, we, we share our experiences of pain that are, are tremendous, but, but we live in a world where caterpillars become butterflies and, and seed become apple trees. You know, and that and that a God made a promise that he would take on himself the sin of the world, that you don't have to bear your own sin. And that is what the death and burial of Jesus meant for us. That Jesus literally, as it says in Colossians, that with him was nailed the sins of the world on that tree. Right? And that, that, is, that is the story that's being told by the scripture, that's being told through history that is the story that's being told, that this is actually happening, right? This is actually happening. I mean, just like you had to learn in elementary school that the seed does become the big tree, you have to learn that the God does save us from our sins, that the guilt that you experience will be paid for by his death on the cross. It has been paid for by his death on the cross, right? When he was buried... I mean, he's, he's bearing us. That's what baptism means, that, that we go down with him, right? 
and we can be raised to new life with him. That this story is true, just as true as the seed becomes a tree. And it's amazing. It's amazing. This is what we see. This is what we find. Lilius Trotter says this. She says, death is the gate to life. For man's natural thought of death is that of a dreary ending in decay and dissolution. And from his standpoint, he is right. Death as the punishment of sin is an ending. But in God, his thought in death, his own death, is the redemption of the world. He takes the very thing that came with the worst curse and makes it the path to glory. Death becomes a beginning instead of an ending, for it becomes the means of liberation to a fresh life. And that is what the death of God meant for us. I'm going to read for us, just as we, we go into a time of worship, response, and communion, I'm going to read to us the verses in Corinthians that we'll be reading every week for communion. But listen in them now, the anticipation that Jesus is giving the disciples of what they should be seeing in his death. For I received, Paul says, from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. I'll pray for us and we'll worship together. Oh God, I thank you so much that you have called us to live in a wide-eyed wonder of of what you're doing. God, what you're just, you're making available to us in Christ. God, you're making available to us not only experience of hiking awesome mountains and seeing the beauty that you've sprouted to life, but you're, you're showing us also in your own purposeful action of, of coming, living, dying, being buried, and being raised to life again, that we can have life that's true and free from shame and guilt. I'm, I'm very thankful for that. And I pray that we can just respond, God, that your Holy, Holy Spirit will call us to respond in worship. I praise in Jesus' name, amen.